Hey, I'm eager to get into the word tonight, uh, especially because I have an encouraging word tonight. I'm, I'm just so thankful that I have an encouraging word tonight. It uh, seems like all the messages that we've been dealing with on Sunday morning have not really been that encouraging as we've been looking at some difficult things. But tonight, I just have an encouraging message. And so I'm just very eager to jump into God's word tonight and encourage you in the Lord. Amen. So we're continuing our series in Hebrews chapter 11. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open with me there to Hebrews 11. And we've been looking at this chapter now for several months, looking at the different heroes of the faith, those who were faithful to God, uh, even in, in good circumstances, bad circumstances, but through their faith, they bore witness to God. And we looked at the faith of Abel and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Moses' parents and Moses and Rahab and all of these different people that, that took a stand for God because they trusted in God and how God uh, used their lives to bring him glory. I want to remind you of uh, the, the first verse that gives us the definition of faith. That is That word that is used 28 times in this chapter. Verse 1 says, faith is the assurance that the confidence of things hoped for, that, that we hope for things in God and we are confident that God will deliver on what he has promised. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, that we don't see these things yet, they're not material, they're not reality yet, but we trust in God in spite of what we see right now. We trust in him and his word and his character and who he is. And that is what faith is. It's not, it's not seeing things and believing them. No, it's believing God that he will deliver and one day we will see what he has promised. And what faith results in, we've seen it over and over again, the, the manifestation of faith is this confident obedience in God's word, that, that we believe God's word, we trust in God's word, and we choose to obey God's word, no matter what the circumstances or the consequence or the outcome might be. And we know, of course, that the devil is a liar, and he tells us all kinds of lies about, well, if you obey God's word, then this is going to happen. Then this bad event or this, this bad consequence will happen if you take a stand on the word of God. However... Faith says, I will believe God and his word instead of the lies of the enemy. Amen. And so we've seen God's people do this over and over and over again. And so this brings us here to this passage that we've been looking at in verse 32. And we're going to look at verse 32 through the end of the chapter tonight. And he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. We, we've spent time looking at each one of those. And then in verse 33, he tells us what they did. That through faith, say through faith, through faith, they conquered kingdoms. And we know that we look at Joshua and the children of Israel as they moved into the promised land. They conquered kingdoms through faith. That, that even armies could not stand before the people of God who stepped out in faith in God. They conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. 
We looked at the ministry of the judges and, and how God used them to bring about righteousness and justice and to deliver God's people from oppression. The ministry of the judges as they enforced justice, how they obtained promises. In Joshua 21, 54, it says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All of them came to pass. Listen, you can trust in the promises of God through faith. Through faith. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouth of lions. Of course, we know of Daniel in the lion's den, how he was thrown in as a punishment for what? What, what, was, what was his great sin? What was his great crime that Daniel committed? He prayed to God. Prayer had been outlawed. And Daniel said, well, there's a king above the king. And I'm going to obey his word. The king's word, it doesn't line up with God's word. And so Daniel, he didn't just go into his closet. He didn't go into his bathroom. He didn't pray behind closed doors. No, he went to his window. He opened his window. And he began to pray to God three times a day. Though the king had outlawed prayer to anyone but the king himself. The king placing himself as divine. Daniel said, no, I'm going to... I'm going to obey God. I'm going to live by faith. And they threw Daniel to the lions. Much like they might throw us, not to the literal lions, but the proverbial lions, maybe. They threw Daniel to the lions and they lost their appetite. They weren't hungry. The angel stopped the mouth of the lions and delivered Daniel. And then when they went and found Daniel in the morning... The king called out to Daniel. He said, Daniel, has your God saved you? And he said, yes, the king, yes, king, my God has delivered me. And he said, bring those wicked people who passed this wicked law and throw them to the lions. Let's see if they'll be protected. And it says, before they hit the ground, the lions leapt and tore them to pieces. Amen. The Old Testament was uh, quite a day and day to live in. The consequences were a little bit higher. But let me tell you that there is a judge that stands at the end of history. And every act of evil and every evil law and every act of wickedness and every evil ruler will stand on that day before that judge. And it's going to be a lot worse than an angry pack of hungry lions, let me tell you. Because Jesus isn't just the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's, right? He's both the Lion and the Lamb, as Justin reminded me of the other day. The Lion and the Lamb. But not just Daniel. Samson also overcame a lion. David, as a shepherd boy, was delivered from the mouth of lions. So these people, by faith, they accomplished these great things. They quenched the power of fire. How many of you remember the three Hebrew children who, again, the decree goes out. When the music plays, you have to bow down and worship this idol of gold. And when the music played, there, there stood three lone people, three Hebrew boys on that day. Though the whole nation of Israel had been exiled... It wasn't just three Hebrews that were there that day. It was just three Hebrews that stood that day. And God delivered them from the fire on that day as they stood 
not alone in the fire, but there was a fourth one in the fire, one like the Son of God who delivered them, quenched the power of fire. It says they escaped the edge of the sword and were made strong out of weakness. I mean, the whole Old Testament, all of, I mean, all of these stories, can, so many can fall into that category of people being made strong when they were weak through their faith in God, of God delivering them out of peril through their faith in God. They became mighty in war, it says, and put foreign armies to flight. And women received back their dead by resurrection. We know of two stories of that happening, both with Elijah and Elisha, both being used by God to raise a, a, a child that had passed away from the dead. And then as it continues here, it says some were tortured. How did that get in here? That, that, that can't be. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. They were tortured and said, if you will recant, if you will uh, 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 renounce your faith in God, if you will declare that, that you don't serve God, but you serve Baal or you serve Molech, if, if you will uh, refuse to believe in the Lord, you will be, we will release you. And they refused to be released, though they were tortured, so that, it says, they might rise again to a better life. They were looking forward to the resurrection not just to live a good life now, an easy life now, no, but a better life. The resurrection, the glorified life, forever, eternally with God and in his presence. They looked forward to that, exchanging temporary suffering for eternal glory. It says others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. This, this parallels the ministry, this is describing the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah, how he was imprisoned, how he was mocked, how he was beaten, how he was eventually martyred, Jeremiah. It says that they were stoned, that they were sawed in two, they were killed with the edge of the sword, that they were poor and destitute. They went about in their clothing. They didn't even have clothes to wear. They wore sheepskins and goats. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering around in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. They didn't even have a home to live in. These prophets that were persecuted for their faith. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect, that they are going to share in the inheritance that we will share in in that last day when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you would bless it as we spend a few moments here looking at these, these mountains, these pillars of the faith. Lord, who not only trusted in you in the good times, but also in the hard times, in the difficult times. And, and may our faith also stay strong. 
even in the hard times that we go through, that we all go through in this life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we like the first half of the list. Can, I mean, we agree on that. That's awesome. People being raised from the dead, armies being put to flight, people conquering kingdoms, enforcing justice. And then before we even know it, he, he, he transitions to talking about people being tortured, being, people being sawn in half, people being beaten, flogged, imprisoned. We don't really like that part. Nevertheless, it's here and they're commended for their faith. And the question I think that that we need to answer tonight is how did they keep their faith in God when everything is going wrong? Because it's not that hard to keep faith in God when everything's going right, when everything's going well. When we're just blessed and highly favored and praise God, I got a close parking spot up at the Walmart. You know, God is good. Amen. But when things go wrong, when tragedy strikes, when the unexpected happens, when the doctor's report comes in that we weren't hoping for, when we lose our job and we lose our income, and and maybe you even took a stand for, for Christ and you're suffering because of that. The loss of friendships, the loss of relationships, the, maybe even the loss of friends and family. How do we maintain our faith in God in those times? And here we see that they even suffered more than we have ever suffered. Yet their faith in God didn't fail them. They, stayed, they had faith in God all the way to the end. They have lost far, and I've known people who have lost, who have experienced, and they've lost far less than this. They've suffered far less than this, and yet have lost their faith in God. They've turned their back on God. They said, God, you didn't come through for me the way I thought you would come through for me, so so you didn't do what I wanted, so I'm not going to serve you anymore. And nevertheless, these people suffered far more and didn't lose their faith. How? How? I would submit to you that the reason why they did not lose their faith and what will keep our faith strong, even as we go through hard times, which the Bible promises us that we will. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. I wish he didn't say that, but he did, right? In the world, you will have tribulation. However, he said, take heart because I have overcome the world. So how did they not lose faith? How can we keep our faith strong? Here is what I believe is the key. They knew God. They knew God. They knew their God. They had faith in their God that they knew. The one true God, the true and living God. They didn't have faith in just some idea of God. Faith in some obscure, nebulous deity. Faith in in just some unknowable God that's up there somewhere, maybe watching, maybe not. not. Not faith in the God of the culture, Not faith in the big guy upstairs. You ever heard anybody talk about, you know, I know the big guy upstairs, you know, he's he's looking out for us down here. 
No, no, no. No, I'm talking about faith in they knew God. They knew who their God was. And this is what we need. We need to know God. And if we know God, our faith will not fail. Our faith needs to be in the God of the Bible. Our God who has revealed himself to us on the pages of Scripture. He has shown us who he is. Why? So that we can know him. Be in a relationship with him. So many people, they just have this God idea, but they don't know God. Of course, we know that Jesus will say on, at the end of history, there'll be a great line of people that think they are going to be admitted into heaven and into the kingdom. And on that day, Jesus says, many will I say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. But these people, they knew God. They had a close and personal relationship with God. Not just some just generic concept of a deity. Not just some theistic idea, but the God of the Bible. God has revealed himself to us so that we could know him, that we could love him, that we could walk with him. Faith in the one true God, faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Faith in our God who, who left heaven's throne to be born in Bethlehem's manger. Faith in that God. Faith in the God who left heaven's perfection to come to earth and to this broken place. Faith in that God. Is your faith in the God who left the streets of gold to walk the dusty streets of Jerusalem? To be born as a baby in Bethlehem? The one who exchanged the praise of heaven's hosts and exchanged that for the shouts of the angry mob? Crucify him, crucify him. Faith in the one who took our sin and our shame upon himself and who now clothes us even now in his own righteousness, exchanging our sin for his righteousness. Faith in the God who died so that we might live. Faith in the God who rose again on the third day, who ascended into heaven who rules and reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, and, 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 and we are united to him, and we now share in his victory. Listen, our faith is not just in some generic, nameless, faithless person. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself to us. He has shown us who he is. We see a greater, a clearer picture of God than, than these people ever saw. They only saw a shadow. They only foresaw who God was, pre, was saying he would be and, and who would come. But we see the full picture in Christ. Faith in our God. You have to know your God for your faith to stay strong in the hardest and the most difficult times. You see, if you don't know your God... It becomes easy to, become, to be rocked by the, the hardships of life, by the tribulations of life. 
If, if you don't know the God that has overcome the world, when we experience tribulation in the world, it's easy for our faith to be rocked because we've put our faith in not the one true God, but maybe some God of our imagination or the God of pop culture. But there's two truths I want to encourage you with tonight, two truths that we have to know about God that will strengthen our faith in the hard times. I could have done three, but I'm just doing two tonight. Two truths, two bedrock truths, that if you know these truths and you know these about God, you can truly endure anything in this life and your faith in our God will stay strong. The number one is that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign. The scriptures declare this over and over and over and over again. I want to just read for you several passages. We're not going to take time to, to dive into them. I just want to read them to you that declare the sovereignty of God. That he is the king of kings and lord of lords. That he rules and reigns. That he is in control over the events of our lives. Psalm 103:19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens... And his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all their depths. He's saying you cannot go anywhere to escape the sovereign rule and reign of God. God's sovereignty stretches from the heavens to the earth, even down to the very depths of the sea. Nothing escapes his sovereign rule and reign and his control. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people's. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. God's, God's plan doesn't run out just because we're alive in 2022. It's not that God's plan, he, you know, he, he foresaw and foredained all of creation up until 2019. But when we clicked over into 2020, ah, his, his, his sovereignty only stretched to that generation. And that everything's just gone to chaos because God doesn't rule and reign anymore. No! His rule and reign, his counsel, the plans of his heart to all generations. So that what we've seen, the events of our world, even as they're unfolding right now, are according to the good, sovereign plan of our God. God is not asleep. This morning I was reading in the Bible, my Bible reading plan that I'm a little bit behind in. Forgive me, Lord, but I'll catch up. Anyway, uh, I was reading in 1 in Kings and it was telling the story about how Elijah put on this, this contest with the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that story on Mount Carmel? And he said, set up the altar. If, if Baal is, is, is God, let him bring down fire from heaven. And 400 prophets of Baal 
all day from morning until evening were calling out to God. They were cutting themselves, trying to get Baal, their idol, to call down fire from heaven. And Elijah began to mock them and he said, maybe, maybe Baal is asleep. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe you need to cry out louder and wake him up. He even said, maybe he's in the bathroom. I think that's really funny. He began to mock them. And of course, then when it came time for him, he called all Israel together and he said, do not forget this. And he poured water and soaked the, the, the altar in water. And then God rained down fire from heaven, proving that he is the one true and living God and putting every other God to shame. Listen, God is not asleep. God's not asleep at the wheel. The devil is not in control. God is in control. God is sovereign. Circumstances are not sovereign. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is sovereign and his sovereignty exists to all generations. Karma is not sovereign. God is sovereign. The Lord recently convicted me of a statement that I would say. And I try not to say it anymore. It's pretty ingrained in me, and so I, I still find myself saying it, and I have to repent every time I do. It's a very common statement, but this statement declares that circumstances are sovereign when we make this statement. But circumstances are not sovereign. God is sovereign. The statement that we say often is, we'll talk about something, we'll talk about some problem, and blah, 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 and then finally we say, it is what it is. It is what it is. We're declaring the circumstance sovereign when we say it is what it is. Because God said, I am that I am. He, he is the self-existent one. He is the all-sovereign one. No, no, the circumstance isn't it is what it is. No, God is sovereign even above this circumstance. The, the, no circumstance is, no situation is, is beyond the sovereign rule and reign of God. Nothing is outside of his perfect plan that he is executing through the course of human history. We need to not declare it is what it is. No, we need to say, God, intervene. God, move. God, you are in control. God, you are sovereign. I trust in you. And nothing is above you and your rule and reign. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. That God is even sovereign over the wills of mankind. Wow. Wow. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. This is why we can pray for our president and actually believe that God could do something about it. Right? If God is not sovereign and cannot control humanity, if God does not have the king's hand, uh, heart in his hand, then why even pray if God is not sovereign? No, it is because God is sovereign that prayer even makes sense. 
We ask God to move. We ask God to intervene. We ask God to change people's hearts, to soften their hearts. Amen? Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to turn over there, Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 has the longest sentence in the Greek language. It, the, there's punctuation here in our Bible, but there's actually no punctuation in um, this section of Greek. Uh, as Paul sits down to write this, he, he just explodes with praise towards God. And this is probably the most explosive description of God and what God has done for us in Christ I really want to look at verse 11, but it's wrong for me to just jump into the middle of a sentence. That I wouldn't appreciate it if someone took the middle of my sentence out of context. And so to really understand verse 11, we need to read uh, starting in verse 3 because this is one long sentence. Apostle Paul writing, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen, you lack nothing in Christ. You lack for nothing in him. Every spiritual blessing. Oh, man, I, sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay focused and we're going to get to verse 11. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Amen. What this passage declares three times is that God is working according to his own purpose. That he isn't following some other plan, some other scheme. That he is following no other direction except for his own will. And then in verse 11, it says that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's nothing outside of that statement. All things means all things. You say, well, what about this? 
God's working that, all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? All things. God reigns sovereign over all things. Now, some people struggle with this because they say, well, this makes God the author of evil. Well, the Bible says that God is not the author of evil. So he's not. But he is sovereign over all things. And you say, well, I can't understand how, how those two things reconcile. When, you, when your brain hits those places, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to fall down on your knees and worship the God who's bigger than your brain. The, these ideas, listen, God is so far above our thoughts. He's so far beyond our comprehension. When we start to try to grasp eternity, the eternal God, the self-existent God who always was and always will be, it starts to make our little brain feel very small. And it's at that moment that we should fall down on our face and worship and not turn away and say, well, if I can't figure out God, that means I'm not going to serve God. I won't believe his word. No, God is sovereign. He is not the author of evil, but he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Charles Spurgeon said that the sovereignty of God is the attribute that is the most comforting to his children than any other attribute of God. Why? Because it means that whatever comes to me in my life has already passed through him. Whatever, whatever happens in my life is either God prescribed or God ordained or God allowed it to happen. There is nothing outside of his sovereign rule and reign. God is in control. That's point number one. Point number two, well, let me, let me just backtrack for a second. Part of the reason why people struggle with the sovereignty of God is because they believe in their own sovereignty. You are not sovereign. You are not in control. He is. And people struggle with the sovereignty of God because they say, no, but I want to be in control. I want to predetermine my course for my life. No, I'm sorry. God is the one who is sovereign. We are not sovereign. We are not autonomous. God has given us all a will and desires, but our wills are not free. We do not have free will. The Bible does not teach free will. The Bible actually says that our wills are enslaved to sin. And that either we are enslaved to sin or we serve God. Those are the two options. But we are not free. There's only one who is free, and that is God alone. He is free to act however he chooses, and he is the only one. Jesus said, I read it this morning, John chapter 8, he who practices sin is a slave to sin. We're either slave, enslaved to the devil and enslaved to sin, or we are set free by the power of the cross to what? To serve God. Those are our only two options. We are not free. The true freedom that we have is freedom to serve God. 
That is true freedom. But it's not autonomous and it's not sovereign. The Bible does not teach that we have free will. The Bible teaches that we are enslaved in our wills to Satan or that we have been set free to live under God's rule and reign. God is sovereign. We are not. Isn't this encouraging this evening? <laughs> number two, number two is that God is holy. God is holy. I, was, I originally had in here for point number two was that God is good, and he is, amen? But God is something better than good. God is holy. God is holy. Isaiah 6, 3, the angels, the, the cherubim that Isaiah sees when he sees the vision of the Lord, what are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What are they singing in heaven around the throne? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is holy. That means that God is perfectly good all the time, that everything God does is always right every single time. God has never done anything wrong. He's never made a bad decision. So when I combine the sovereignty of God with the holiness of God, and God's goodness is a subset of his holiness, that is such good and glorious and comforting news. Because the God who is sovereign is also good. The God who is sovereign is also love. The God who is sovereign is also holy. And the will that he is working all things according to the counsel of is a perfect will. A perfect will. The will that God is working out throughout human history is perfect. He is bringing, as, as Paul writes, all things all things together in a council with God's will. All things together in Christ. God is working his perfect will. They're, 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 when God set the universe in motion, when he spoke existence into being, he knew every single event that would happen and foreordained it to happen. Because God is good. And Romans 8.28 tells us that God is working all things, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, and we know, if you want to keep your faith strong in the midst of hard times, you have to know this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what uh, theologians called the unbroken chain of redemption. That before time even began that God foreknew us and he chose us in Christ, predestined us, 
that he called us, that he, through, through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit worked in us in this effectual call of God upon our lives. He called us, that he then justified us, and he will also glorify us. This is an unbroken chain. It cannot be broken because God is the one who is working it. And all things, he says, are working according to, for, working out for our good. All things. Everything. Every hardship, every trial, every test, every heartbreak, every uh, every time that someone has spoken against you, every time someone's lied about you, every time someone has hurt you, God is working that for your good. And we know. Do you know that? Do you believe that? You say, well, I don't know how this could fit into that category. Listen, if you're struggling with that, let me encourage you to look to the cross. Because the cross of Christ is the single worst event that has ever happened in human history. It is the greatest act of injustice, the greatest act of barbarism. There has never been a worse thing that has ever happened to anyone than Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Never. But that was God's good and perfect plan. That was never an accident. Do you understand that before God even created the world, that Jesus knew he was going to go to the cross? Before God even said, let there be light, the cross was already in view. So the most evil thing that has ever happened, God foreordained that it would bring about the greatest good for all humanity. So if you are struggling with how could this event possibly fit into God's plan, look at the cross. How could the cross fit into God's plan? We stand here at the other side of the cross and we see how God through the cross is reconciling the world to himself. But the apostles who stood there that day, those 11 disciples who watched Jesus betrayed, who watched Jesus crucified and died, the one who they thought would be the Savior, the one who they thought would be the Messiah, they sat there and thought God had failed. But God had not failed at all. That was according to his good and perfect plan. And God used these evil men who worked out this evil plan and Satan who thought he had destroyed the Son of God that on that Sunday morning, that first resurrection Sunday when the ground began to shake and Jesus rose in victory, defeating Satan, defeating sin, setting free all of those who would ever trust in him, that the worst event in human history within the hands of God is producing in the world today the greatest good. And so even the tragedies of life, God can use, God will use, God will redeem in our lives. And let me just submit to you that we on this side of eternity, we may never see how God used the tragedy for good. We may never see that with our own eyes. But it doesn't mean that his promises have failed. It doesn't mean that, it, that he will not work it for our good. And when we stand before him on that day, 
Not a single one of us, when, when we see how the plan of God unfolded and we see how redemption, the history of redemption unfolded and we, we see how everything that God accomplished through our lives and even in our pain and our suffering, not a single one of us will stand before God on that day and say, God, how could you have allowed this to happen? Every single one of us on that day will stand before God and we will say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. I didn't see it at the time, but I see what you see now. Because God is holy. God is good. God is bringing everything about according to his perfect plan, moving human history through his hand of providence to his desired outcome and the culmination of his perfect will. I want you to consider for a moment the opposite of this. Consider that God is not sovereign. Consider that God is not in control of every event. That to me is a much, much harder and more depressing view. The idea that, 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 that evil takes place and God has no purpose for it whatsoever. It's all meaningless. It's all purposeless that God is not bringing about a, a greater good that we can't even comprehend or understand? How is that a more comforting belief? That there's no purpose behind anything? And how could we even trust God to bring history to its full and complete end if he's not in control of events? No, that is a much darker fatalistic way of thinking. There is a purpose in all things, whether we see it or not. And those who hold on to faith in God, this is what they hold on to in the hard times. God, I don't, I don't see it. I don't understand it. But I am trusting that you are sovereign over it and that you are good in the midst of it. And if you can hold on to those truths, you can hold on to God and keep your faith strong in the midst of every trial. When you start questioning God's goodness, your faith is in a dangerous place. When you start questioning God's sovereignty, your faith is in a dangerous place. Let your heart be strengthened with these truths. God is sovereign and God is holy and good. Therefore, no matter what kind of test or trial that we face, we can have faith in our sovereign God. So do we believe what we really say we believe? Do we believe that God is sovereign? Do we believe that he is good? Do we believe that he is presently reigning in heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Do we believe in his return? Do we believe in the resurrection of the dead? Do we believe that we will inherit on that day glorified bodies? No one in the kingdom of God who has died in this life will not receive more, who has suffered in this life, will not receive more and a hundredfold for eternity upon eternities more. My favorite quote, I'll leave you with it tonight, Jim Elliott, missionary martyr. He said, he is no fool who trades what he cannot keep to buy what he can never lose. Listen, this life is short, this life is a vapor, this life is fleeting, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, but there is an eternal reward for those who serve God. And it is not a foolish thing to lay down what we cannot keep, 
Jesus even said, to be my disciple, you must die daily. You must take up your cross and follow me. It is, we are not fools for following Christ. To, to lose what we cannot keep, to gain an inheritance that we can never lose. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Do we believe these things? If we do, our faith will stay strong even in the midst of challenging times. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we close in prayer tonight. Father, we thank you for these great and glorious truths. Lord, though it is hard for us to even comprehend it's at these moments that we choose to fall down our face and to worship you, the God who is above all things. Lord, your word declares so clearly, so unambiguously from Genesis to Revelation that you are sovereign. Lord, help us to understand what this means and, and how this plays out. Lord, let us not try to exert our own sovereignty, but let us choose to embrace your sovereign plan for our lives knowing, Lord, that you are holy and that you are good and that you are just and that you are righteous and that you are working all things according to the counsel of your will and that you are working all things for our good, those who love you and are called according to your purpose. God, I pray that you would press these truths into our heart and settle them deeply so that as we do face the hard times of life, that our faith in you would remain strong. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.